Lord, I thank you so much for the privilege we have of, of knowing you, of serving you, of following you, of reading your word. So many people in this world don't have that privilege. Lord, help us to be grateful and to continue to dig deep into your word and get to know you better. You are the God who inspired these prophets, who spoke through them. We hear your heart here in their words. And Lord, as, as we go through the last four minor prophets today, I just ask that you be with us here, present, that your grace and your strength and your hope and your truth may be seen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. So we have our last four to go through. Um, those of you who weren't here the first couple days, I do have the other handouts. If you are watching them, I can give those to you. So um, we're going to start off with Joel. So Joel is very uncertain as to where to place him, so thematically and time-wise. He doesn't give us any information really about where he comes. I personally think he comes after the exile, which is why I've placed him here simply because of Joel 3, when it seems to talk about, in the very first couple verses, that um, these, God's going to gather back his captives, okay, that have been taken into other lands. So that's my best sense of when he comes. But there are some who put him very early, one of the very earliest prophets, and um, there's the evidence for that, I would think, would be um, the connections with some of the early prophets, like Jonah, Hosea, he has connections with those. He also has connections with some of the later ones, though, too, so it's difficult to know. Um, but at any rate, Joel is a one of my favorite books. I actually got to write on a whole chapter on Joel and part of my dissertation, so I'm going to try to keep it short because it's, yeah, I could talk forever about Joel. So, um, But Joel has... Um, a really fun structure. So there's, if you remember what a chiasm is, what's a chiasm? Like a mountain climbing structure, right? So it's got two of them and they intersect each other. So there's different centers in the book and they intersect each other. And the best way I, I know of to describe Joel, well, and there's also what I have here, uh, many chiasms, and then there's also a cycle. So you've got these two mountain climbing structures and then you also have a cycle that occurs several times through the book. And this cycle starts with a call to hear, and then it goes into horrors of devastation or a reversal of that devastation, and then cosmic signs. It doesn't occur in the first cycle, but it occurs after that. And then a call to repent, and then a response or a return. So we're going to read a couple of them in here in a minute. But what I find significant about this is this cycle, as well as the two chiasms, helps us understand what the prophet is trying to say about the end of time. So we, we read Joel 2, 28 to 32 often. The New Testament quotes it a bunch. Shall come to pass afterwards. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Well, how do we know when that is? How can we apply that to us today? How can we apply that to the time of Jesus? Why did they apply it then? It's not very clear if you just kind of read through, but the structure helps you understand that, okay? So I'm going to go just briefly. I'm not going to read all of these verses that I have there, but some of them. So the, very, the first chapter is really a historical description of the locust plague. So he goes through, first he says, you know, he calls out for them to listen, and then he goes through this horrible things that these locusts have done. So it's, it, it ended up in the destruction like the Dust Bowl of, of America here, and that was the idea, just everything green is gone. If you imagine looking outside and it's 
It's all gone. No, no more green. This is the horrible things that has happened. He just goes through this horrible destruction, everything that's happened. And it's very clearly these are literal locusts. No one really debates about chapter one, are these literal locusts or not. Okay, well, a few people do, but most people don't. I think it's pretty clear from the text that these are literal things. Then um, you, you don't have the cosmic signs there either in chapter one. Okay, it just goes into straight into um, C or D there, which is the call to repent. So 1, 13, and 14, he's like, repent, repent, everyone should repent. And then there's this promise of restoration um, and this response. Interestingly, the response in chapter 1 is only the animals. The people don't repent. Okay, so the animals are the ones that cry out to God. There's debate in verse 19, is that talking about the prophet? That's the, the Hebrew is unclear there. It's either the prophet or it is the, a representative animal calling out to God. But they're, all, they're longing for God. They're saying, God, will you please come and save us? And in chapter 2, God answers the animals too, as well as the people, even though the people don't um, cry out to God in chapter 1. So that's chapter 1. It's kind of, it's more clear. Then you get into chapter 2, and it's, I actually have my students do this. If you look at chapter 2, are these real locusts or are they not? It's really unclear. There's elements of them that seem real, where they're, you know, attack, they, they march like locusts and they do all sorts of things. But then there's elements of them that are not like locusts at all. They crawl into people's houses. They march in ranks. Locusts don't do that. They have weapons of destruction and they fight like people would fight. Question. I just got out of Dr. Uh, Jay Gallimard's class where we talked about the locusts. We mm -hmm. talked about the green grass. We talked about all of that. And then locusts are horses in Revelation. Does that parallel this? I believe so because of chapter 2. Okay. Not chapter 1. Okay. Because what I think is happening here is in chapter 1 you have a very, and this is getting into the second section, but that's fine. So you have, you have a historical event of locusts attacking everything. This makes Joel think of the future. So he then starts describing this apocalyptic army that's going to come. Yes, I believe so. So he's, he's telling them of what, what is going to come in terms of the locusts. So he's, he's shifting slowly through the book and he's bringing elements so you get to chapter 3 and it's just solely all in the future of this final, final destruction of all of God's enemies. So he starts local, literal, real locusts. Then he moves to, this is my best understanding of it anyway. I, you know, I'm willing to always go back to it. But in chapter two, it's, it's fuzzy. Are these real locusts or are they not? And it, there's elements of both of them. So I think he's, and the, again, the, the prophets off, the classical prophets do this. They take something that happens then and they say, all right, it's not just about now. It is about now, but it's also about the future when God's going to restore his people. And it's also about the future when the Messiah is going to come. And then it's also about the future, 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 when the Messiah will come the second time and make everything right. And there's going to be no more problems. So when I think you see all of these things in Joel. So he starts out with the, with the local, then he goes to the, the future army that's going to come and destroy Israel. And then that makes him think, and then God's going to destroy them. And then that makes him think of the final end time thing that's going to happen. We had a question over here. Or you're just, no? Okay. Um, so let's look in chapter 2. We won't read the whole thing, but um, let's read a little bit of it. Um, verse, we'll start in verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. So this is a call to hear. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. 
for the day of the Lord is coming. So it's not just locusts, right? It's more than that. This is pointing beyond already. He's giving hints that. It is, it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, clouds and thick darkness. Again, this is language of covenant curses, like we've seen before. Also language of Sinai, when God came before. So similar language there. Like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, the people come. So he already describes them as a people. Great and strong, the like of which whom has never been seen, nor will there be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them. When do you have fire with locusts? Not usually. And burns behind them a flame. The land is like a garden of Eden before them, behind them a desolate wilderness. That kind of sounds like locusts. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds, so they run. So again, I think here you're seeing him starting to, to see beyond. He's saying this is reply, this is dealing with the locusts, but it's also looking to a future army that's going to come that's going to look like the locusts. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops, they leap like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array before them. The people writhe in pain, etc., etc. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation. They do not break ranks. So again, this fuzzy description between locusts and people, it could really kind of apply to both, and I think that's his intention here. So he goes on describing these horrors of devastation. Then he adds in here just a small element of the cosmic signs. Not very much, but in verse 10, you have the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, the stars diminish their brightness. Okay, so he's already showing that this is, this is reminding him of something that's going to come in the future, which he expands on further later in the book. Revelation is a patchwork of quotes of the prophets, actually. And we, we now realize this, that people used to think Revelation was written in bad Greek, but it's really, it's Hebrew Greek. So it's, it's, he's quoting, I mean, we usually just think of Daniel in Revelation, but he, he's pulling together all the prophets, not just one. So there's, there's a lot of work we need to do, I think, on Revelation, going back to the prophets. But so then he goes on and God says in verse 12 to 14, return to me. So it's this call to repent. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, rend your heart, not your garments. Again, God is always longing for the heart. He is returned to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn? And that is the same Hebrew word. So it's saying, you return to God, and he's going to turn to you. He wants to already, but he can't if you're running from him. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? Does this sound familiar from Jonah? It's the same exact phrase that the king cries out. The king is saying, who knows if God will return, turn, and relent? So that ends that second cycle. You can see the third cycle then already um, is beginning, um, calling again, calling the, I'm sorry, that's the response. They're, they're, they're calling assembly. They're gathering the people. And then in um, 18 and 19, you start the, second, the third cycle. And it's going into this time restoration. So it's focusing in on the restoration of the, from the locusts, and in fact, it, he goes through in great detail all of the things from chapter 1 that were destroyed by the locusts are now restored to the people and to the animals. So it's just list after list after list after list. He restores all of these things God does. Again, you have cosmic signs, 28 to 31, going into more detail on the cosmic signs, pointing out this is going <sighs> beyond here, but it connects back. So the rain that comes and the restoration of the land the restoration of the material things then make him think of the restoration of the spiritual things. So again, this going from what they are experiencing 
to what they will experience in, in the more spiritual realm. And this is why I think it's very clear that 28 to 32 is pointing forward eschatologically to the end of time. And so um, if you look at the, the third point there on your handout, the people are shocked in Acts, not by the application of this to the time of the end, which of course starts with, with the Messiah in, in scriptural terms. Um, the, the time of the end of the end is still to come, but we're, we've been living in the time of the end since Jesus came. So, um, but they, so they're not shocked by that, I don't think, at all, because you, you find through all the time, this, is, this has always been known to be eschatological, but it's very clear, I think, in the structure of the book. They're shocked by the application to, to Christ. This is what shocks them. How could you make this applicable to him? That's preposterous. We don't, you know, we're, we're expecting some different Messiah. So um, that's my sense anyway. Of course, this is Pentecost. We actually just finished Pentecost. I don't know if you knew that. We just came through Shavuot. So this is the time when, when um, well, it started Sinai. So it represented, it first happened on Sinai. So all of these signs that you're seeing here, the giving of the Torah, the, the, um, the writing the law on the hearts, the, the flame of fire coming down, the shaking, the smoke, this all happened on Sinai first. So that was the first Pentecost. And it, of course, that's pointing forward to the time of the Messiah, which we see happening, which we had time to go into all the feasts we don't. But anyway, so this, the Pentecost is happening. Remember those three, sorry, I'm really talking fast today, but there's so much good stuff. You remember the three phases of fulfillment that we had. What was the first one? This was way back on Monday. Okay, so that, the local one then pointed you to the three other phases, right? It was supposed to be local, but it didn't happen locally, so what, it, what was it going to happen in? Okay, Messiah, right? It was going to happen in the Messiah. Then through the Messiah, it happens to whom? His people, the people who believe on the Messiah, okay? And then it also happens when? At the end. So it's when the Messiah comes again. Right? So it's these three aspects of this one fulfillment. So you see this here in Joel again. Pentecost, referring back to when it first happens, then it happens at the Messiah, then it's going to happen in us. God's writing his law in our hearts. His spirit is on us. And then it's going to finally happen at the end of time too when God fully um, is dwelling with his people. And this is chapter 3 in Joel. It's chapter 4 in Hebrew, so I have to keep, I get my numbers all mixed up. The Hebrew is different chapters here. They actually make 28 to 32 is, is, is chapter 3, and then chapter 4 is the rest. So it's kind of cool. They separate out. Because I, I don't know. I like that better, but it's life. We have to remember both numbers. Um, so it's, he starts with this call again. Um, he's calling them to come back this time, and then he, he goes into, the, again, the reversal of the devastation, interestingly enough. If you look at verse 10, it's very opposite of what you have probably heard this verse usually used as, beat your swords into plowshares, right? What does this one say? Beat your, beat your plowshares into swords, okay? This is this final apocalyptic battle. Final end of time, God is doing away with all of evil. So in chapter 1, the locusts came. Chapter 2, he's looking forward to the time of the end. Chapter 3, he's like, it's done eradication of evil. Everyone is coming to ju be judged before God. All of the nations, they're all coming to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means God judges Jehoshaphat. God is the judge. So they're coming there. 
And God is saying, you know, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And then he goes back into cosmic signs. Sun and moon will go dark. The stars will diminish their brightness. So he's cosmic signs again. This is right before the, he comes the second time, the day of the Lord coming. The Lord will roar from Zion. The heavens and earth will shake. But the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This is this covenant language, this final covenant that he's going to make with his people that is never going to be done away with. And, and I wish we had time to look at all the connections in this last chapter with a lot of the other um, amazing descriptions of heaven. So this, this water coming out of the throne of God and um, this beautiful picture of fruit and gardens and um, God's presence with them. It's just amazing stuff. Um, so that's Joel. Anything I've missed here? Probably a lot of it, but anyway, we are going to move on because the, these last ones are so, will take us even longer. Questions before I go on. I haven't been very good about asking for questions. I'm sorry. Probably talk way too fast and then, as always, my trouble. I tell my students they get their money's worth because I talk their ears off and they probably lose half of it, but anyway, maybe something sinks in. All right, Haggai. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are really a, they go together, um, and they have a lot of connections also with Ezekiel, who is writing after the exile. So they have a lot of similarities, and I've mentioned some of them there on your paper. So um, they're all post-exilic, so they come after the exile, the people are coming back. Actually, there's thought that probably due to Ezekiel during the exile, and then after the exile were the reasons the people never went back to idolatry. They, they ran into other troubles, but they, these prophets made clear to them and they, they reminded them of where they had come from and they made sure they didn't go back. So they're focusing on the rebuilding of the temple. Of course, Ezekiel, in, his, in, in the last vision God gives him, it's on the Day of Atonement, God comes back to his temple, which is really cool. So he's left it at the very beginning of Ezekiel, he's coming back and he's saying, I'm going to build it again and I'm, I'm coming there. I've not gone forever. I just went away because you kicked me out. So now I'm coming back. Um, so Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi are, are expanding on this idea of God coming back to his temple. Of course, the temple is nothing like it was, and this is the problem for a lot of them. So a lot of the people get discouraged because the temple looks so minuscule and ugly in their eyes in comparison to what it did look like. And of course, they are harassed by a lot of the other nations not wanting them to rebuild the temple, and they start putting their money into their own houses rather than into the temple and God's keeping. So um, these prophets are kind of getting after them for that. But they are very much about dating. They date everything. They're very careful to date. If you remember, we talked about this before. Before the exile, the prophets weren't, weren't very good at that. I don't know about good at that. They just didn't need to do it, I think, because... Um, their, their words were coming to pass right away. People were pretty much believing them. Well, those who were faithful and those who weren't were just didn't care anyway. So after the exile, you had most of the people listening to them. They were wanting, but they were questioning their authority. Can they really be right about this? Because we're seeing what the temple is like and how can they really say that it's going to be better? Like, what is their problem? So um, they're, they're documenting everything with dates and making clear. They also ask a lot of questions. So... Um, kind of more like Habakkuk, ask questions of God, ask questions of the people. They bring in questions. Um, they are masters of rhetoric. What is rhetoric? 
how you speak, right? Speaking well, persuasively. So, um, lawyers, <laughs> yes. Um, but thankfully, other people can have it too, right? But if you think of that, yeah, how you're persuading someone, how how you how you say things, right? Not just what you are saying. Um, no, it's more of a question, a rhetorical question, asks a question and gets with an intent for you to answer it in a certain way. So again, it's, it's asking a question. You have an agenda in your question. Yes. So, so they are, they, they have very clear agendas in their questions. And I mean, obviously all the prophets do, but they are actually taking the questions that the people ask and asking them in such a way that it's making the people answer it in a way that then that gets them to say what they want them to say. So they are really good at this. Let's read Haggai 2, starting in verse 15. This is a very common phrase for Haggai. He uses this phrase five or six times in these very short two chapters. Um, and now, carefully consider from this day forward. Does, do any of your translations have something different than that? 2.15, Haggai 2.15. I don't think I have it down in there in your handout. Anything other than carefully consider? Look at what was happening. Anything else? Think about this. That's probably closer. In, in, the, in the original, it's actually set your hearts on. So it goes back to the heart issue again. So he's saying... Don't let this just be a, a, a mental exercise. I want you to actually get your heart into it. Yes, of course, it involves thinking of what's happening and considering things, but it's, it's more than that. It's deeper than that. And he says it several times here in these verses. Carefully consider. Set your hearts from this day forward. So he's saying, I don't want you to just look back at what was. I want you to look forward to what will be. From before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days, when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. When one came to a wine vat to drop 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail on all, all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider, set your heart now from this day forward. So don't look back at what you did then. Don't look back at what was then. But look forward from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, and consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. So putting your heart on what God will do, and I think this is really important for us because it's easy to, it's easy for me at least, to look at my present circumstances or whatever's happening in my life and not look at what God will do, not remember his promises, not, not, um, Think of the glory to come. It's easy to get caught up in this mess of life. And that's what was happening to them. They weren't doing massively, horribly sinful things like, we, like they were before. They weren't sacrificing children. They weren't worshiping idols. They were just, they didn't have their perspective in the right place. And so I think we can really relate to the people here and, and, and need probably the same message. At least I know that I often do. They were just caught up in daily living. Yes. Yes and not boldly claiming God's promises, saying, you're going to do this, Lord. We believe. And so we're praying with all of our hearts for it to come soon. Um, so yes, it's, they, 
They, they weren't horrible people like before. They were trying to follow God. They were just distracted and lost a little bit along the way. Um, so why does God give them this promise? And I want to spend a little bit extra time on, on verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 of chapter 2 because this is the, the passage from which the title of one of my favorite books comes from. Know this. For thus, this is verse 6, says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. Desire of ages. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. The, the trouble with this is that there are almost... No scholars today, there are even some Adventist scholars who don't see this passage as referring to Jesus at all, um, because of the fact of the connection, well, first of all, we'll just look at the passage in here, and then we'll look at one of their connecting passages, bunches of them that people bring in. So he says, they shall come to the desire of all nations, and, and literally the word there is, is hamad, which is like, it can be used for either a person or a uh, material possessions, silver, gold, treasures, etc. So, and the Hebrew is ambiguous. Um, is it they shall come to, or the nation, the desire of all nations shall come to them? So it can be translated either way. And if you look at the next part of the verse, or the next verse, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine. And God has promised in other places that all of the gold and wealth of the nations will come back to Israel. So let's look at one of those places that people use to show that this is not, that's Isaiah 60. So people use this passage and many other passages to show or to argue that this is not at all referring to the coming of the Messiah, just referring to, still referring to God blessing them, of course, but he's bringing wealth to them, etc. So Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, your light has come. You know this passage well. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you. His glory will be seen upon you. Gentiles shall come to your light. Kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar. Your daughter shall be nursed at your side. You shall see and become radiant. Your heart will swell with joy because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries, all those from Sheba, they shall bring gold and incense. They shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. And he goes on to describe the silver, the gold, the silver, the gold, all of the possessions. Um, Zechariah 14 has a similar passage, similar idea. God at the end of time, just like he did for bringing Israel out of Egypt, he's going to bring all the wealth of everyone and give it, take it back and say, it's mine, I'm going to give it to my people. So this is... This passage, along with many others, have been used to show, or argue again, that this is not the Messiah. Well, I think that partly they are right, because I think this has a dual purpose here. Similar to what we saw in Joel with the locusts, the word used is not the word used in Isaiah 60. It is the word used in some other places. But did I put Hamad there? Not sure I did. I did, I think. Ambiguity of Hamad. This is on number three. Um, so this is the word that Haggai uses here. Desire is Hamad, which can be either a person or possessions. 
So I wish we had time to go through all the passages where it's used. There's not that many, about 20 of them, and you can see this, this dual application. It's used for people. I've given you one there, Ezekiel 24, 16. Let's look at Daniel 10, because you're more familiar with that one. 10, Daniel 10, verses 10 and 11. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands, and he said to me, O oh, Daniel, man greatly beloved. That's greatly hamad. Greatly desired, greatly loved. Um, understand the words I speak to you. Stand up for I've now been silent to you, etc., etc. So this happens in Ezekiel. The Ezekiel passage there is about Ezekiel's wife being his desire, his hamad. So it's this word that can have double meaning. It can refer to a person or it can refer to possession. So I've listed a couple passages there where it can refer to material things. Song of Songs 5.16, it also refers to a person. My beloved, my desired one, my Hamad. So I believe, rather than the connections with these other passages showing material wealth coming to Israel um, and to the temple, is not wrong. It's just that it's both. And Haggai uses this word on purpose because it can be ambiguous and it can be sneaky and it can bring in both things at the same time. I think. Um, there's a lot of times the prophets do this, and I think we get into trouble because we often don't realize this is happening. For instance, I don't know if you've heard um, the one about in Isaiah 7:14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's not the word for virgin. It's the word for young maiden, young woman. There's another very specific word that's word for virgin, and it's not used there. So many scholars today are like, see, this is not talking about Mary, it's not talking about Jesus. Well, I think they've missed the boat because it's a, it's a word that's ambiguous. It's a word that means young woman of marriageable age. And if she is chaste, she's not married, then she would be a virgin. If she was married, she wouldn't be. And I think it has dual application because it's referring to Isaiah's wife, who is going to have a son right away. And he fulfills the beginning part of the prophecy, which is then pointing forward. It's this type of the later part of the prophecy, which Jesus is going to fulfill in Mary. So he's using the word alma on purpose because it has ambiguity. So when Matthew, again, Matthew's always the bad one, right? So he's like, see, the virgin shall conceive, and everyone gets on Matthew's case. It's just not virgin there. How can you use that word? But it's, it's because it's an ambiguous word, intentionally there for us to see this dual focus. And I think what helps here, I have um, some twofold use of other terms also in this passage in Haggai. So if you go back to Haggai now, by the way, the... the, the um, Word in Isaiah is a different word. It's not Hamad. So it also troubles me that I don't see how people can make that connection there, except, I mean, it's a thematic connection, but if you're going to make a thematic connection, you can make a thematic connection anywhere you want almost. And that, so, I mean, they're good, but you have to be careful to not just do a thematic connection. There needs to be more there, I think, if you're saying this is what's happening in this passage. Anyway, so you've got this double aspect of glory as well, I believe. So you have... The glory is talking about the um, person who's going to come. The Messiah is going to come himself. God is coming. He's going to shake heavens and earth. So he's coming. And then he's also bringing the glory of the silver and the gold. So it's used in a double way as well. The shaking is also used in a double way. He's going to shake heaven and earth. And then he's going to shake all nations. The word that's used there for shake is the word that's used for tremble. So it's not so much that he's shaking the nations, 
but he's shaking the heavens and the earth, and that's causing the nations to tremble. So it's, again, this double, double meaning of these words here on purpose, I think, to help us understand why he's using the desire of all nations um, doubly. Again, in 2, 21 to 23, at the very end, when he's bringing in Zerubbabel, who was Zerubbabel? Okay, he was a governor. Do you remember what his lineage was? Where did he come from? Why was he significant? Line of David, yes. So it's really cool, actually, if we had time to go into Jeremiah, but Jeremiah says, you know, he makes this prophecy that Jehoiachin will not have any children in exile. So many people say, see, you know, this didn't happen because he obviously had offspring and, you know, or, and this, but it's clear when you go to Chronicles that he had offspring before. And, and Jehoiachin, from the line of Jehoiachin comes Zerubbabel. So God's promise that through the line of Judah, through the line of David, there would never cease to be a king on his throne. Zerubbabel is fulfilling that, but he's not the only fulfillment. So look at this. In 21, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. So again, this connection back to what we just read about the Messiah coming or the wealth coming, right? And he does both again here. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride on them, the horses and their riders. Shall come down everyone by the sword of his brother. So he's talking about material prosperity here. The Gentiles are going to go down the nations that are not following God, and God is going to bring it to Israel. And then he says, in that day, he focuses now on the personal, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, like the, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. And this is the same word that's used back in Jeremiah, saying, I'm going to rip you off my hand, Jehoiachin. You were a signet ring on my hand, and I'm going to rip you off. So now he's saying, I'm giving it back. Here you are again. I'm making you again a signet ring, but he's only like a signet ring. He's, he's, a, he's a, a surety of something more to come, someone more to come. For I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. And let's read, I think I have there. Oh, I don't have there, but we should read it anyway. Jeremiah 23. So I think you have a similar parallel in Jeremiah 22 and 23, 22. God is saying, I'm taking off the signet ring off Jehoiachin, but don't worry, there's going to be a faithful person who comes to fulfill that. And in 23, 4, 5, and 6, he says, I will set up shepherds. I'm sorry, let's start in 3. So God says, you've scattered my flock, but I will gather the remnant of my flock. So this is 23, 3. Out of all the countries where I've driven them, I will bring them back to their folds. They will be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them. They shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. So the Davidic line is coming again. Not only is he Davidic, though, he's not just a king. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. This is his name by which he shall be called what? the Lord, right? He's Yahweh. So the signet is saying this is a surety that in the future, at some point, will be someone from the line of David who will be Yahweh himself who's going to come and make everything right. And Zerubbabel is this um, sign that it's going to happen. So Zerubbabel actually comes back in Zechariah, which is kind of cool. So they all mention these same people. Questions before we move on to Zechariah? Yes. 
Meant what? Something you see. I think it's kavod there, which would not be that. But kavod carries elements of um, heaviness, so it would have to do with um, like you'd be you'd be bearing the burdens of. Oh, I did the wrong thing. Of you'd be weighted down with like jewels and stuff. That's where the idea comes. So your honored glory has to do with these heavy things of glory that you're carrying in you. That's verse 8. 9. Yeah, it's kavod. So it's a very common word, but it would be like heaviness. But it would usually it would mean honor. So some sort of honor or glory. I have a quick question about the set your hearts Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that particularly happening through all the minor prophets that is translated into saying forward or something like that instead of set your heart on? It's a good question. I haven't looked at I that's a that's a phrase unique to Haggai. So I don't think it occurs in any of the other minor prophets. Um I'm my I mean, heart is everywhere through the Bible. It, it means multiple things. I think the reason actually Jesus adds when he says, Sir, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, he's adding mind in there, which is not in Deuteronomy, because heart implies mind as well. Oh, oh. So, well, yeah. Sorry about that. In the last 15 years, <laughs> has been confirmed that the heart has their drives and that they set of our values hmm. and our deepest uh, feelings are actually in their heart. Cool. That's even better. Yeah. Well, at any rate, it's, it's um, I do find that often translations don't get something with heart right. And I think it's because before it was equated with mind. Yeah. We're talking about heart. Yeah. But now we know that, yes, it can You have emotions, emotions, passions. And I think it also comes with, with a fear to, or a, an influence from those who think that God doesn't have any of that. So, you know, talking about God having emotions, a heart, you know, we, we tend to associate that with our sinful aspects of our emotions, but God definitely has a heart and emotions, and it's very clear in the prophets, if, if not everywhere else, too. So, yeah, I do think that, obviously, our own biases impact how we translate. That's why, again, I recommend looking at multiple translations if you don't know the Hebrew. I don't believe everyone needs to know Hebrew. In fact, I think I would love that if everyone did. I think it'd be amazing. But um, Martin, Lu I love Martin Luther the way he describes it. He taught himself Greek and Hebrew, and he because he, he realized that he says the reason is because you can understand the gospel, you can understand everything, you can explain it, you can preach, you can do an amazing job with the translation, but he said if you're going to defend it against error, you have to know the original. So that's why we require our pastors and um, theology students to know it. 
But other than that, we're grateful if any, anyone knows it, but I, I, I think that's been my most sense. I've tried more and more to teach from the English because I want people to know that you can see these things too. These are not mysteries. These are not like I, you know, I have to know Hebrew to understand this stuff. So, but, but it helps if you read several translations because then you can kind of get an idea of where there's this confusion and what does, you know, what's it meaning? You had a question. Um, you had a question. Um, a friend of mine gave me a storm from mm -hmm. because he went through things. Mm -hmm. And I'm learning a lot out of it. Good. Um, you can... Like you say, you take the word and you figure out that when you read this passage, it ain't the same when you read another passage. Yes. So it's troubling, isn't it, sometimes? Yeah. It's confusing, so you can take, you can look in the back of the, the component, the strong components. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a big book and it has Hebrew and Greek in it, and you can find these words mm -hmm. and you can find out what they're doing. And I always keep a dictionary with me and I trust So I can find out what words mean because. Yes, the, the thing you must also remember is that in Hebrew especially, words, because they have so many meanings, words are very rich and deep, so the context is the final determiner of the meaning there. So yes, you might say, all right, why is this word translated different over here? Sometimes it's because they did it right, and it should be translated different. Sometimes they might have missed it, so you know, it's always good to, you know, I try to say I write everything with a soft lead pencil because I, you know, I'm always wanting to go back because we're, we, we are fallible always. You know, God's word is, is infallible, but we are fallible. So we always have to be careful when we're going there and saying, you know, do I have this right? And always keep checking yourself and praying for guidance. And all right, let's go on to Zechariah. So I want to do something that I was going to have people come up, but I don't know if we have time to do it. So just think with me. We're going to start in, in 1 verse 7, because this is kind of the introductory. He has a bunch of visions. Okay, Zechariah, I've got to draw something on the board at least. Zechariah is a, another multifaceted structure, and you have one big chiasm, and then you, on each side of it you have smaller chiasms. So this is 3, 6, 9 are the centers. So you have here... The priest king, here is the king, I think I have this on your handout, and here is the priest. And within these, these are all parallel, and then these are parallel as well. And there's more within that, but that at least gives you a basic idea. So that's why we're focusing on three, six, and nine in the handout, okay? So, but one kind of gives you an introduction as to who's talking and what's going on. So, on the 24th day, verse 7, 1 verse 7, of the 11th month, which again, he's dating everything, right? The word of the Lord came to Zechariah. So you've got Zechariah, person. The son of Ido, the prophet. I saw by night. Who's I? Who's Zechariah, okay? He's seeing, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. So we've got a man over here, okay? Two people so far, right? Man. Zechariah, man, it stood among the myrtle trees. So there's myrtle trees. Behind him were horses, more horses, red, sorrel, and white. And I, who's I? Zechariah, Zechariah said, my Lord. Who is he talking to? We find out in a moment. What are these? So the angel who talked with me, right? So he says, my Lord, the angel who talked with me says, I will show you what they are. So now we have a third person. Zechariah, an angel, right? And man over here in the myrtle trees. 
So verse 10, the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are the ones whom the Lord, so we had a fourth person, the Lord, right? Yahweh has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees. So who's the man among the myrtle trees? The angel of the Lord. So now we're getting more indications as to who this person is among the myrtle trees. Um, we walked to and fro along the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts. So you have the angel of the Lord, and you have another angel over here with Zechariah. And then you have the angel of the Lord who's answering the Lord. O Lord, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? So the Lord answered the angel who talked with me with good and comforting words. So who's the Lord? In verse 13. Is it Yahweh here or the angel of the Lord here? It's ambiguous, okay? So we don't really know yet, I don't think. So he gives you more clues as time goes on through the, through the book. Who is this angel of the Lord man person, all right? So chapter 3 is where we're going. 3, 1 through 8. So this is the, the priestly elements here of this person. So we showed, we're going to do another, we're going to do this again, all right? So try to do it in the same way. Now he showed me Joshua. The high priest, so now we have Joshua, all right, person, standing before whom? The angel of the Lord, that same person who was among the myrtle trees, right, who looked like a man at first, but then they realized it was an angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So we've got Joshua, the angel of the Lord, and Satan, okay? And the Lord, who's talking here now? Right, but who is that? Yes, it's the angel of the Lord clearly here. You don't have the Lord in this at all. You've had other visions intervening. This actually happens in each chapter. It happens in chapter 2 as well. But um, So the Lord rebuke you, Satan. What? I think that makes it clear, okay? Because he's saying, he's saying the angel of the Lord's here with Satan beside him, and he's saying the Lord said, the Lord rebuke you. So the Lord is the angel of the Lord who's talking about another Lord, Yahweh and Yahweh, both Yahwehs. Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. So again, back to angel. <laughs> angel, the Lord, angel, the Lord. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. So this element of something that only God can do, I'm taking your, your iniquity from you, I'm clothing you. So if there's any doubt about the angel of the Lord being the Lord, being Yahweh, being a deity that's gone now. So I said, so Zechariah is speaking again, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes by, on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, if you will keep my command, then you should judge my house and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Here, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a sign. So he has said, this is, this is the coolest thing to me, all right? So he's like, you're a sign of who? Behold, I am bringing, so this, okay, we got to go back. The angel of the Lord is saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, right? So Yahweh here is saying, thus says Yahweh. Um, you are a sign that I am bringing my servant, the branch. Who's that? The angel of the Lord, right? So he's announcing himself, which I think is really cool. Anyway, so, but they are signs of him to come. 
So they are not him. Joshua is not him. Joshua is not Jesus, but he has the same name, and he is the sign of the one who is to come. And Joshua comes back again later in this book. But here we have, we have so far, he's the angel of the Lord. He looks like a man. He's a priest, so he's removing iniquity. He's the branch, so he's doing all these wonderful things, priestly things. So now we move on to chapter 6, starting in verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me saying, receive the gift from the captives from Heldai, Tobijah, and Jedediah who have come, Jedediah, who have come from Babylon. Go the same day into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and gold, make an elaborate crown, set it on the head of who? Joshua, Joshua again, the, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So here he's clearly a priest again. Now he's going to also have a crown. So we had a turban in chapter three. Now he has a crown. What is going on here? And I think what is key to this is, oh, I skipped Jeremiah 23. We already read that before. Anyway, all right, Ezekiel 21. Keep your finger in Zechariah. We're going to Ezekiel for a moment. We have to read at least one Ezekiel passage. Such a wonderful book. All right, um, Ezekiel 21, verse 25. Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come. So he's talking about this prince, this ruler in Israel whose iniquity shall end, thus says the Lord God, remove what? The turban and take off the the crown. So these are the same elements, priestly, kingly, nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the humble, humble the exalted, overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes, whose right it is, and I will give it to him. So Zechariah is saying, he's come. Hallelujah! He's come. We're putting the turban and the crown back on this branch. And Joshua is the sign of that branch to come. So he's even more here. Back to Zechariah 6. So he's taken the silver and gold, made it a crown. He's already put a turban on him. Verse 12, then speak to him saying, thus says the Lord of hosts saying, behold, the man whose name is the branch. So before he was a sign of the branch to come, now, he, now he's saying, in who he is right now, he's representing the branch. He's the priest, he's the king, he is representing this branch who will come. From his place he shall branch out, he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he, he shall build the temple of the Lord, he shall bear the glory, he shall sit and rule on his throne, he shall be a priest on his throne. So he's both. He's going to rule as a king with the crown, and he's going to be a priest on the throne with his turban. And the council of peace shall be between them both. What is that talking about, them both? Okay, but it's one person. So who's, who's, the, who's the most recent other person that was mentioned? Okay, after that. The branch, yes, I think it's the two Yahwehs. So it's Yah, the Lord of hosts is saying, behold the man. And then he's saying, but there's going to be peace. So them both cannot be the priest and the king, because it's one person there. there. He's both priest and king. And Joshua, it can't be Joshua because that's Joshua already, right? So the only other person you have here is Yahweh. So this council of peace between Yahweh and Yahweh. I don't know, it's just so cool. Anyway, we see this in a lot of different places. Um, I wish we had time to dig into more of them. But it's really cool if you actually go back through all the passages. This is fun to do where the angel of the Lord is mentioned. And I think about 90% of them, it's clear that it's also Yahweh there. I do not believe so. I believe the angel of the Lord is specifically Christ. I actually, this is my personal 
thought, and I, I think Ellen White um, hints at this as well, that all of the interactions between God, between Yahweh and his people, is always Christ. Um, well, no, I think you do have the Father often involved, but when you have the, the, the person of the Godhead who always interacts with his people is always Christ. He's the one who came down on Sinai. He's the one who gave the Torah. He's the one who led the people out. And I believe the reason he's an angel, the reason he looks like an angel, it goes back to Proverbs 8, where he says that um, he is going to be the mediator. He's going to be the one who understands he, from the foundations of the world, from before the foundations of the world, they, they were all equal. They all had the same purpose, whatever, but when they decided to create beings, one of them stepped down already at that point and said, I will be the mediator between creatures and creator, even though I'm also the creator. So I believe he becomes, an, or he looks like an angel, and this gets into, if you go to Ezekiel 28, which is why I wish we had more time with that too, but it's clear there that, um, that I think it's clear, more clear than anywhere else, that the, that Lucifer was one of the cherubim and the other one was Michael, who was the angel of the Lord. So you can see why there would be jealousy, right? So he's already this person or this angel-looking being to communicate with the angels because that's who God made first. So he steps down to look like one of them. So then when he, when he steps down even further after he makes people, he starts looking like a human. And then he eventually becomes a human and dies. So it's this continual self-voluntary saying, I'm going to lower myself to communicate with my creatures. And he does this so that most people, when they first interact with the angel of the Lord, they think it's a man, most humans. And then they're like, oh my goodness, it's the angel of the Lord. Ah! And then they realize, ah, it's God, I'm going to die. You know, and this is a very common reaction that people have when they run into the angel of the Lord. And they, they first, you know, Jacob, when he's wrestling, he's like, I'm wrestling with a man. And then he's like, this is strange. I think this is maybe an angel. And then he realizes, ah, it's God. And actually in Hosea, Hosea says that it's the angel of the Lord he wrestled with. So often this is a typical progression that people have. And you have this here in Zechariah too. So, all right. Nine. So nine through 14, I think is this story of this one shepherd king because a shepherd, a king in the ancient Near East was a shepherd. So that was, the, that was a, a, a title of glory that you give someone. And so this was this title that he gave. It's one shepherd king who first comes and then ends up dying for his people. So it's this one kind of narrative of this same person um, who started. So you have in nine, chapter 9... 9 and 10, these very familiar words, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt the full of a donkey. And we usually think of this as just this lowliness of Jesus. And I thought, yes, that's true. But um, riding on a donkey was a royal mount. That's what all the kings did. They didn't ride on horses. Horses were for war. They rode on donkeys. They were saying, the, he is royalty. He's coming into the city. And it's the exact same phrase that's used in Genesis 49 for this coming king, predicted by Moses long, long ago, saying he will be riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's this exact same phrase, and Matthew, of course, quotes this, and anyway, we had, don't have time to get into that, but I think he's quoting it exactly. Also, he's not contradicting the other gospels. Some have said that, because he mentions two donkeys, but I think it's because he's, 
he's seeing these two here. The others are only mentioning the one, but there actually were two in the original prophecy. Anyway, all right, well, so I'm just trying to exonerate Matthew. Matthew, I think, gets it right. He sees much more than we usually see, and he, he's doing really good comprehensive exegesis. So the afflicted people have no shepherd, so God becomes their shepherd. In 10, 11, read through Zechariah for your worship sometime this week. It's powerful. There's so many messianic just stuff everywhere. You have the 30 pieces of silver. You have them um, getting, you have him getting wounds in the house of his friend. You have just all this imagery that comes up later that's very clearly this shepherd king who's receiving these things. So the, the Messiah to come is Yahweh himself. This makes, makes it very clear. But let's go to 12. We have to start in verse 7, or verse 8. Start in verse 8. 12, 8. In that day, the Lord will defend the... I just actually had my, one of my honor students, um, he did his project on Zechariah 12, 13, and 14, and he's shown in the Hebrew how 12 and 13 seem to be talking about Jesus' first coming, and 14 is second, which is really cool, because I've, see, I've seen people talking about this, but not really... So he looked at every single occurrence of in that day in the entire Hebrew Bible, and try to, and it was crazy, but he did a really good job. So here's another one. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God. Like who? The angel of the Lord. So if there's any doubt left in your mind, here we have it clearly. God is the angel of the Lord. These are the same person before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. So I will pour on the, everyone, then they will look on me. Who's me? The Lord, okay? The Lord is talking. I'm sorry I didn't read back further enough, but this is God talking. They will look on me. I'm sorry, 12 verse 10. Look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him. It's him as one mourns for his only son in grief for him. So who in the world is this? They're looking on me whom they've pierced, and yet they're going to mourn for him. It's the same thing again here, right? Okay, you've got Yahweh and Yahweh, <laughs> but they're both Yahweh. They're one, and yet they're two, or three. I actually think they're three in here. Zechariah really gets at the Trinity because you have the Spirit comes in here as well. So it's powerful. You've got this powerful unpacking throughout the prophets of who the Trinity is. It's always one, one Yahweh. And yet there's two or three. How does that work? It doesn't make any sense to our brains. And I don't think that's, I think that's the intent. It's confusing because we're never going to get it. I think we're going to be studying it through eternity and probably still just be lost. But anyway, we should try to think about it. So this great morning happens, etc., etc. 13.1. In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and uncleanness. It shall be in that day that I will cut off the names of the idols. So on this same day that the person is pierced, that God is pierced and they mourn for him, the same day also is the day that he brings this fountain for cleansing. So that's actually what my student showed, was that when you have this series of in that day, 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 in the same pericope, it's talking about the same day or same time. So then in chapter 14, you move into another time. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming yet, right? So it's not yet here. So it's this different time. Um, 7, 12, or sorry, 13, 7, and 8 are also really, really powerful. This striking of the shepherd. So awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, 
says the Lord of hosts. So it's again, you just kind of read that, but think about it for a minute. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Who is his shepherd? The king, Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, right? Against the man. He's still the man, right? Who is my companion, says Yahweh. So again, Yahweh, Yahweh, but he's the man. And this is cool because the, man, the word for man there is the same word for man that's used in Lamentations 3. I am the man. He takes it on himself. He takes all the suffering on himself. Um, the word for companion is this, it's probably the closest um, word that you can use beyond marriage for two people that are really, really close. And it's used through Leviticus for, the, for your bosom buddy, your heart person, the person that gets you and you get them. And so Yahweh is saying, we're one and yet we're two. And it's, anyway, it's amazing. So strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones that shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord. The two-thirds shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name. I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, Yahweh is my God. And then he goes into this amazing picture of his second coming again, where he's complete, he's died. So this word for striking here in 13, I think is very clear that he is the one who is dying. He is taking the place for them. But in 14, he's back again. He's alive again. And he's coming again. And he's going to make all things new and all things right. Here's where you have the Mount of Olives split in two. And this amazing picture of what the, the second coming is going to be like. Again, of course, Zechariah... And the reason I think Zechariah can give us a, uh, a distinction like this, because most of the other prophets conflate the first coming of the Messiah with the second coming of the Messiah, because they're seeing it through the lens of far in advance. It's like what Jesus does with the destruction of the temple and the second coming, right? So he kind of puts them all together, because if he separated it out, people would be totally overwhelmed. So put them together. But after the exile, I think the prophets can be more clear because they realize that, wow, we really need the Messiah to come right now, and it doesn't look like Israel's going to be faithful, and so let's look forward to this final coming when he's going to come and make all things new again. Um, so, <coughs> all right, Malachi. Whew. Okay, but this last thing here I think is so cool. What I wrote, I just, I, I have been moved by this so much studying Zechariah because um, the Yahweh shepherd who conquers by suffering and death is coming again. The day of the Lord is Yahweh himself. Yahweh is coming. This same Yahweh who gave us the Torah, who became flesh, who died for us, he's coming again. And we don't have to be afraid if you know him. So if you know this God, man, angel, branch, shepherd, savior, add all of the other things that he is, you don't have to be afraid. And that's the amazing thing here. And I think um, I mean, you never have to be, but, but I think Zechariah just gives us this very clear picture of, of it in the, I think he's the Isaiah of the minor prophets. So he gives the clearest picture of who the Messiah is in the gospel story of any of the minor prophets. They, they all talk about it, but he really fleshes it out. All right, Malachi. Again, this covenant focus comes back. We don't have time to talk about this, but I should briefly mention, I think a lot of people have said, well, God loved Israel and he hated Esau, but those words are covenant terms. So they're not saying that God 
has a hatred of other people that aren't in his covenant, has an idea of choosing those people to be his covenant. It's interesting, um, if we had time to look at Malachi 1, how the people in Malachi 1, or how Israel is described, is actually worse than how Edom was actually described. So Esau never does anything really terrible. He doesn't, he just, he despises his birthright, but it doesn't says he despises God. But all through the prophets, Israel despises God. So, you know, God's love for them, God's covenant choice for them is not based upon their good deeds. And I think that's really important to remember as Adventists that God's choice of us to give his message to the end of the world is not because we're better, not because we have some sort of better thing about us. It's because God chose us. That's just how it is. So we're res- we have more responsibility, but we are not better. Our job is not to hold it in and say we don't care about whatever, you know, we're, we have the truth and no one else can. No, we're, our responsibility is to share it and, be, and not be like Israel did and not share it. Um, so this covenant with Levi, I think you have elements of Levi there as this um, ideal priest, which is also pointing forward to the Messiah. So we have no evidence of a covenant with Levi anywhere, which I think is really significant because in Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 33, which are the, talking about too many things that I'm not making sense of. But anyway, there's a whole chiasm of the Torah, and the, the um, poetry parts of the Torah match up. So Genesis matches with Deuteronomy, and they're all about the 12 tribes. And within each of those poetry sections are prophecies of the Messiah. Through Levi, through Judah, through Joseph. Okay, so Levi is mentioned here as this ideal priest, only in Genesis 49, it doesn't say God makes a covenant with him, but he's mentioned as this ideal priest that, so you have the prophet, the priest, and the king already foreshadowed in the prophecies, the very first, some of the very first prophecies of the Messiah to come. And you see that picked up here now in Malachi. So, um, and I think this is even more significant because of the very end of Malachi, he says, remember the Torah, because I'm pointing you back there to see that this Messiah is coming. So he makes a covenant with Levi. I want to mention this briefly because I think it's important. I think chapter 2 is often misunderstood. Um, When God says in verse 16, I hate divorce, God hates divorce. Um, And I think the reason he says this here is because he is divorced. God himself divorces Israel. We talked about that back with Hosea. But he doesn't do it because he doesn't want her back. He does it because she's committed adultery over and over and over and over again, and he's done everything he can, and he can't reach her, so he divorces her. So God gets it. He gets the pain of it. So he's not saying, I hate divorced people. Thank goodness I am divorced. My husband left me four years ago for another woman, and so I don't want to be divorced. But I've really come to appreciate this passage because God gets it. He understands the pain of it. He knows the brokenness of it. And he is, he is hurt in his heart by it because he knows what it's like. Um, and what he was dealing with this situation is, well, let's just read it. Starting in verse 10, 2 verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for the Lord has prof- for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. 
May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awakened aware you who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So, we read this and we're like, okay, what did they do? What is, this, what is the story of what they did? They divorced who? Not in this passage. They do that too. They divorced their faithful wives, right? Their, wife, their covenant wives, their believing wives, and who do they marry? Pagans, okay? And we look, this, this actually very clear evidence that Malachi happens at the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah both spend two or three chapters of their book describing the situation where these people, they're, they're trying to deal with the people who, are, who have um, married these, the term is again translated usually foreign women. And what they do with them is that they, they tell them they must break off their marriages with them and they must send them away, including their children. And people have looked at this and said, see, this must have been a significant time where God was trying to preserve his, this, the, you know, the holy seed, and so he just had them divorce. You know, but this is opposite the New Testament because in the New Testament, God says you should keep being married to the person who is if they're not a believer. And I think that, again, people have gotten it all wrong because in Ezra and Nehemiah, they are dealing with the first part of this situation where they have married these foreign women, but they've not just married these foreign women. They have divorced their faithful wives to do so. Even more significantly, in Malachi, he uses the typical terms for marriage and divorce, what you would, would, be a, would be a right marriage and a, right, or a proper divorce. If you have to divorce someone, it's because of adultery. Um, and, but in Ezra and Nehemiah, he uses different terms. He says, you haven't really divorced your wives because they, didn't, they couldn't be divorced. They were faithful to you. But you've been led astray by these pagan women. And actually, the same word that's used in Ezra and Nehemiah is the word that is used for Solomon's wives. It's the words that's used in Proverbs for the adulterous woman. So these were not just women who worshipped other gods. They were adulterous, pagan harlots, essentially. And the word used for marrying them is not the typical word for marriage. It's not the legal word for marriage. It's the word for cohabitation. So there's not even certainty that they even married them. So I don't think they were doing anything. Ezra and Nehemiah were saying, look, you didn't you didn't actually divorce your wives because there was no reason to divorce them and you're not even married to these women. You're cohabiting with them. So please, break, cease, and desist. So this is why I think Malachi gets so crazy here is because he's so frustrated with them. It's not just dealing with divorce. He's dealing with a much bigger, more painful problem that's going on in Israel. Um, but thankfully... God does not stop there. There's one last cool messenger thing here where we need to see. It's fun. Chapter 3. So, behold, I send my messenger. This is actually the name Malachi. Malachi, my messenger. So I send Malachi. So there's some thought that Malachi is the one pointing forward to the final messenger who's going to come. So who's I? Yahweh again here. I, so Yahweh is sending my messenger, and he, the messenger, will prepare the way before me, who's Yahweh. So again, you have two people, and Yahweh, whom you seek, will come to his temple. Who's that? 
It's Yahweh again though, right? Yahweh is sending a messenger to prepare the way before me. And he says, I'm coming. So Yahweh is going to come to his temple, right? So I'm going to come. Even the messenger of the covenant, and this is the, again the word malach, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, he is coming. So you have the Lord is sending a messenger to prepare the way before the Lord, who is also, what's he going to do? He's going to come, right, to his temple, and he's also equated with the, the messenger of the covenant, okay? So he's got three names already here. So he's the Yahweh who's speaking, he's the Yahweh who's going to come, and he's the messenger of the covenant, which is the same word that's used for the angel of the Lord. So angel and messenger are the same words. So, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of, Le of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to Yahweh, which is himself, again, right, an offering in righteousness. So he is Yahweh himself. He's doing the cleansing. He's coming. And yet he's also the messenger of the covenant, the angel of the Lord who is coming. So it's two people only. You have the messenger who's preparing the way, and then you have Yahweh himself, who's also the messenger of the covenant, but the angel of the covenant, the angel of the Lord. Um, so he's a, it, just in this one small book, he's a priest, he's like Levi, right? He's this prophet, he has this, this prophetic element, this prophetic role of saying he's going to come, and he's the king. He's the king who's going to sit and rule over his people and bring righteousness. And I love the last part of Malachi. I just want to read it to end here. Um, starting in verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. And we often talk about the books written before God, and we think of that as, oh, it's our deeds, and we're horrible, and... No, this is a remembrance. God also has that book. We forget about that one. This is the one I think he loves to look at. His people that he loves and that love him. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will arise. So it's that same sun, right, burning up the wicked. But the sun can be burning, as you well know here at camp meeting, but it can also be healing and blessed in this, the winter when you don't, you see sun, hallelujah, right? Um, the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. You shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked. They shall be un ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Why are they to remember? Because it talks about these exact same things. It tells them of the Messiah to come. It tells them of God's grace, his hope, and his truth. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So it's this hearkening back to chapter 3, right? I'm going to send this person before I come, and he's going to be like Elijah. He's going to have this message of warning. Um, so once again, I think it refers to multiple things, right? So it's referring to um, Elijah, 
and it's referring to John the Baptist coming before Jesus. It's also referring to, I think, our message before um, Jesus comes again the second time, saying, please, turn back to me. I want your heart. That's really what I want. And that is, to me, the message of the prophets. God is coming again. You don't have to be afraid because you know him. You live in his heart. He wants your heart. Um, please come back to him. Please let him love you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the prophets that tell us of your grace, your love, your longing to restore us again, make us new. Lord, please help us to carry the message of grace and truth and hope to this dark world, Lord, this dark and dying world. I know that you work powerfully on your own, but you, you are using us, Lord, which is incredibly humbling. Please help us to be faithful messengers, to carry your carry your message of your soon return and to help people to see the healing in your wings, healing in the sun of righteousness and not be burned up like stubble. Lord, you do not want to, anyone to die. Please help us to be faithful messengers. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.